G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies at CFRC, so thank you very much. Now, if you mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Sam McClellan, who is doing a master's degree in religious studies. Welcome to Grad Chat, Sam. Thanks for having me, Claude. I'm excited to be here. Now, actually, I first met Sam at the Ontario... Well, I don't know, actually met you before. Yes, yes. But uh, we had a bit more of a chinwag at the Ontario University mm-hmm. Fair, which was back in September. Seems such a long time ago now. Now, that is an event of huge proportions. Yeah. If, no, if you've never been to it, it's an amazing thing for mm-hmm. those high schoolers to check out all the universities. As a campus guide for Queen's, how did you find meeting so so many people both on the tours and at the OUF? I mean, do you like meeting people? Yeah. <laughs> because you get to speak to a lot of them. Yeah. Well, I've done it for five years now, So, because I did my undergrad here at Queen's, right. so, and I've been a tour guide since. Um, I actually prefer the Ontario University Fair, oh, I think, right? to tours generally. Um, I think it's Less just, walking? Less walking, <laughs> yeah, you're kind of stationed in one spot, and it's um, kind of just go, 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 it's constant, right. Right. Um, and it really makes the day fly by. So I really enjoy like getting to meet lots of different families from different places who have questions about uh, the program I'm in, or different programs, and so, right, yeah, right. no, and meeting people such as yourself. You know, well, there we go. Bonus. I mean, there's always yeah. a bonus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it was always funny you know, before everyone before they let open the gates, so to speak, or that right. soft launch, and that they say, which mm-hmm. I never quite understood that. Yeah. So we can all be a bit stupid in the back, right. wait, waiting for them to come in, yeah. and that's when the silly photos get yes, taken. Exactly. But it's it's a lot of fun. No, yeah, it's lovely. So I guess we should get onto what you are researching. Right. Yes. So you said you okay. For first of all, what did you do in your undergrad? Right. Okay. So I did my undergrad here at. I did uh, a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm-hmm. I majored in life sciences and I did a minor in religious studies. And okay. so that kind of was where my interest in doing more research in religious studies came from. And so that's why I ended up doing a master's here. It's interesting because it's not the usual matching that you would or pairing I should no, say no not really I think that sometimes that's a good thing about having electives it yeah. gives you an opportunity to do something else that you were actually interested in too yeah exactly <laughs> and so I took world religions in first year as my elective right. and I wanted a break from doing like pure memorization or calculations right. and so I found it really interesting and exciting and so I took more as I went and then I ended up then with a minor there. basically Perfect. and my research kind of is I think a little bit at the intersection of life sciences and religious studies because it's looking at how medical discourses affect uh, how Catholicism looks at the body, basically. Okay, so you have you have a bit of a long title, right? which is fine. Right. I, I, say, I say, yeah. no, that's okay, because I say that every week to the yeah, students, okay, yeah. that's a really long title, yeah. but I guess you have to get the full impact mm-hmm. in there. So, as you mentioned, you're looking at the role of medicine in investigating stigmata, the reappearance of Christ's holy wounds on various bodies in the context of Catholic canonization procedures. Yeah. Like I said, big title, right. lots, lots and lots in there. So right. first exactly. of all, first of all, what is stigmata? Yeah, for sure. So stigmata is originally a Greek word that was referenced in uh, the Christian Testaments, and from Greek it roughly translates just to the word marks. Um, okay. So that's kind of the 
the original sense of the word stigmata. Since then, within Catholicism, it's taken on a bit of a different meaning in terms of, like you mentioned, uh, the reappearance of Christ wounds on a person's body. And so uh, the first kind of, or I guess the consensus on when this first appears in terms of a a reappearance on the body is with St. Francis of Assisi in 1224. 1224. Um, And so he's um, probably one of the the most well-known and most venerated Catholic saints. So he's kind of the the first to have these uh, supernatural wounds that appear on his body that are said to be the same as Christ's. So he has two in his palms, two in his feet, and then one on the side. Um, And so that is kind of the the general meaning of stigmata. It sometimes is applied to people who have other wounds that are linked to Christ's passion. So um, some people might have wounds around their forehead that mimic, say, the crown of thorns. And that might be called stigmata too. So it is kind of a a slippery definition. Yeah, I mean, we can get into this a bit later, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting when the first one with wounds in the hands, but... It was in the wrist. Right. So so he got it wrong. Exactly. And so something interesting that some historians of stigmata have noticed is that where people get the stigmata in their hands or their wrist depends on the images of Christ they see and that they're surrounded with. And so the recent understanding that um, it was impossible for Christ to have been pierced through his hands because mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to be supported physically. Yes. The the nails were actually through his wrist. Since then, there was a shift in where uh, stigmatics have had their oh, wounds. Is that right? Yes, and they've they've Ian Wilson is the person I'm thinking of who's shown that the images that people see, whether the the wounds are in the the center of the palm or in the wrist, tends to be where our stigmatics will get their own wounds in and mimicking Christ. This, of course, comes into where the, the med- medical side comes in, right. too, because the psychosomatic. So we will get into right. that. Yeah. But first of all, mm-hmm. because I'm going off topic already. Right. No, no. <laughs> I'm like that. Yeah. I go off topic. Can you give me an overview of your research? I mean, it it is about stigmata, but it's also about medicine, et cetera. So what are you trying to accomplish? For sure. And what are you looking at? Right. So um, my interest in this area was peaked in an undergrad course here um, with Dr. Pamela Dickey-Young. It was in religion, dress, and bodies. And so I was first trying to look at body inscriptions or like body markers that are not easily classified as dress. And so I came across these stigmata because I thought it got into the issue of if people are not intentionally putting these on their body, or at least they say they aren't. It's not like a tattoo, but somehow it it means something and it signifies something. So that was kind of the, the start of this research project. But then as I was going, I was seeing that a lot of the historical inquiries into these um, stigmata have been based around figuring out whether they're real or not. Right. And okay. so I was thinking, well, really, what is real or not or true or not as stigmata really right. depends on what framework or a system of knowledge you're applying to it. And It's also on the individual, isn't it? It is, yeah. The individual's belief. Exactly. And so you see in these some of these stigmata cases, you might see uh, Catholic bishops investigating them. You might see uh, medical physicians. You might see both. So it might be someone who's part of the Catholic hierarchy, but that is also a physician and it has medical training. And so I was trying to think through, well, how 
does this actually play out, Mm -hmm. especially in uh, the 20th century? My research is focused around two uh, particular stigmatics who had really large followings. One of them is Padre Pio of Petrosina, um, and he's been canonized actually since 2002, so recognized as a saint. Um, The other is Therese Newman from uh, Bavaria uh, in Germany, and so she has not been canonized, but she has been beatified. And so um, that's kind of the step before canonization. Right, and right. so she's now up for canonization as well. And they had these massive global movements and are still very popular today. So I was trying to figure out if these stigmata are a big part of how people view these either Catholic saint or Catholic blessed. There must be a lot of debate over whether they're real or not. Real or not. Um, and especially in the 20th century where we see medicine as this kind of legitimate, government-supported system of knowledge and way to figure out the truth of the body or not. I thought it was interesting to see how would those exchanges play out in the 20th century. Would the Catholic Church be welcoming to having physicians be a part of it? Because a lot of times the Catholic Church doesn't like bringing science, mixing science with religion or faith. And so, and that's sometimes the story or the narrative that we're told. And so this project was trying to look at how does medicine and Catholicism relate or science and Catholicism relate and what might that tell us more broadly about medicine and religion. And interestingly, through this research, I found that throughout history and even I think in the, the contemporary period, the Catholic Church hasn't necessarily had a relationship with medicine or science that is just adversarial, which is something that we might kind of intuitively feel. We might think religion is opposite to science or um, Catholicism as kind of this seen as a conservative, more traditional faith. They might be opposed to science or medicine kind of incurring on their authority. But it's a bit more complicated, it seems, in the case of stigmata and the Catholic Church actually relies on physicians to help carry out these investigations to make sure that these could be genuinely stigmata, stigmata. as if um, basically they're looking for physicians to rule out other causes. Right. And that is seen not only in stigmata, but in uh, like miraculous healings that are used to determine if someone is a saint or not. Um, Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, who used to be the history of medicine chair here, she wrote a very uh, seminal work on that, looking at how physicians since her period that she was looking at was between 1588 and 2000, that uh, during that period, there was a great increase in the number of physicians that would provide testimony on these miraculous healings. Right. And that around, I think, 90% of all miracles were healings, and almost all of these healings had a physician involved. So it appears that actually physicians and the medical community, though it's changed itself over that period, has really always had an intimate role in working with the Catholic Church. working with them. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that stigmata plays a role in in the canonization procedure. What is that procedure? Right, so... It's a pretty complicated procedure and it changes. <laughs> of course, it could never be easy. Yes, no, of course, of course not. So it's changed over the past 2,000 years what this canonization procedure looks like. I'll talk probably just more about the contemporary period. Sure. It's what I know a little bit better. Basically, for a person to be considered a saint or to be canonized, that's basically the end point of a long series of procedures. Okay. So say for someone like Padre Pio to be recognized as a saint, there's a, a series of steps and processes that he would have to go or he did go through um, to be recognized as a saint. So this all takes place after a person dies. So um, a person couldn't be considered or 
for being a saint like during their life. It would have to happen after death. A group of followers that believe genuinely that this person lived their life to a high moral degree and exhibited Catholic virtues beyond what is normal okay. of like a Catholic follower would be kind of their basis for pushing for sainthood. So it's not just having the stigmata, it's no. other things as well. Exactly. So really, it's first about uh, the virtues that a person exhibited in their right. life. Um, so qualities like uh, charity, um, temperance, prudence, poverty, a, bun- a bunch of other things too. Right. Um, and Pierre Deleuze has a really good article looking at those specific qualities. But basically, the first step is determining whether or not someone lived a virtuous life more so than other people. Right. If they pass through that procedure and it's multi-stepped, it uh, mostly has to do first with uh, the local bishop where that saint died. They'll evaluate their life. They look at the writings that they've written. Right. And they'll try and find any example of where they weren't virtuous. If they can find that they were more virtuous than, say, a normal Catholic follower might be, if they lived this life of heroic virtue and that procedure goes through, then that person would have been declared a venerable. So that would be the okay. first title they get. The next step would be what's called beatification. Right. Um, in the contemporary period, that requires at least one miracle to be attributed to that saint's intercession. So uh, most commonly, it's a healing. So after this person has died, the servant of God has died, someone who is maybe on their deathbed or has a disease that can't be cured might pray to a saint for intercession and for healing. Right. Um, and intercession is this idea that saints are mediating God's action. They're kind okay. of between the follower and God. Um, and so that the saint would intercede on behalf of that person and provide a cure that a medical knowledge can't explain. can't explain. And so that's if one of those miracles can be attributed to that person. And again, this procedure, like Dr. Duffin has shown, relies on physician testimony to prove that this was miraculous and not just a normal recovery. Right. If that's attributed to that saint, then they're beatified. And then a similar process has to be gone through again for canonization. Another miracle has to be verified. Right. And once that happens, then they're a saint. And basically that means that that person can be venerated all around the world. Um, A beatified person, so a blessed, can be venerated in certain circumstances in uh, that bishopric where they died usually, um, but they're not allowed to be venerated anywhere else in the world officially. But when they become a saint, they can be venerated all around the world. But that's kind of the the general overview of how canonization works. And there's Mm -hmm. various steps that take place locally and in Rome, and it's very complicated. complicated. Um, Stigmata, though, interestingly, don't usually have a central role in canonization, at least in the official records. Okay. And yet... It seems that they are very important, at least in these two people I'm looking at, in their popularity. So tell me a bit about Pedro Pio. Yeah, so Padre Pio was um, an Italian. He was a Capuchin monk in southern Italy. He was born in 1887 and died in 1968. In 1918, he said to have this miraculous experience where he was meditating and praying and this um, seraph, so like a six-winged angel, appeared before him um, and pierced him with this holy light. And that's when he 
got the the stigmata, basically. Before that, he was said to have had another experience where he was invisibly stigmatized, but the physical wounds appeared in 1918. Um, And before that, he had a series of illnesses, mysterious illness that were getting worse, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, and doctors couldn't really tell what was happening with him either. And then kind of this, these series of crises culminated in this stigmatization. So I think both of these people are interesting because their lives really extend through the First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War and the rise of like secularism and uh, state atheism. Um, And it's also through Vatican II. So this kind of modernization effort by the Vatican in this period. So there's a lot of questions about is the Catholic Church too traditional and particularly stigmata? Are they signs of like a superstitious, and I'm using air quotes for that, yeah. Catholic tradition. And so that's kind of the the context that these are in. And stigmata, I think partially for that reason, aren't in official records for Catholic canonization. They're only mentioned once. They're not in... Um, like between 1588 and 2000 in official canonization procedures. They're not really in the liturgy for any of these uh, stigmatized saints. And even Pio's bi- uh, like official biography by the church just says vaguely he was immersed in supernatural realities. Okay. And yet when we look at the reason that pilgrims go to visit Pio's place of death and his shrine, Twenty around 20% say that it's explicitly because of his stigmata, right. and another 30% say it's because he was um, imatio, imatio, oh my gosh, I can't say that, basically imitating Christ, right. a- around 30%. And I think stigmata and that kind of similarity to Christ is probably inherent there too. Right. So there's this kind of gap between what the church is saying would be a reason for this person being canonized and what the popular feeling around the saint and motivation to have them canonized and putting pressure on the church um, to have them canonized would be. I don't know if you know this answer, but are there people who've been canonized back in the early years that have stigmata? Right. So St. Francis of Assisi would be the first one. Um, Other ones like St. Teresa of Avila. I'm trying to think more recently. I think Louise Latteau, who was a French stigmatic, I think was stigmatized, uh, was canonized, canonized as well. Okay. Um, so it has happened, and there has been kind of this question of are they real or are they not? I think what's different in this period is that uh, the medical community, as we understand it now, has kind of crystallized, right. and they play a role in determining if these are real or not. Right. And it's like a, it's a very complicated thing because even though the Catholic Church may not be looking in the canonization procedure, are these stigmata real or not, those questions are usually settled earlier on in a saint's life. So, okay. for example, with Padre Pio, um, around 1920, a lot of uh, physician investigations were completed, one by the Pope's personal physician. Letters were sent to the Vatican saying that these things, these stigmata appear real at least. And then the question becomes later, is this person virtuous, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. But if stigmata, at least I speculate, if stigmata were seen to be self-inflicted or not genuine, it would rule out that person for being like a charlatan or for being not virtuous, right? So what about, because I was going to allude to this earlier in the beginning, a lot of the times some people think things like stigmata are psychosomatic. Right. So you have such a strong belief in something, you can actually will it to actually happen. Right. Which can be powerful in itself. Mm-hmm. Right. What does the Catholic Church think about that? 
So it's quite complicated, mm-hmm. and the psychosomatic idea of stigmata has kind of recently been a focus of my research because that, again, is a new way of understanding disease relatively. Right. Interestingly enough, it comes partially from the 19th century notion of hysteria. And a lot of critiques of both Pio and Newman are that they're hysterical or histrionic. And even in medical literature today, we see that on stigmata, that it's people who have these histrionic personalities that get stigmata. It goes back, interestingly enough, to the mid-19th century Jean-Martin Charcot at Salpêtrière, which is this hospital in France. Him and his colleagues basically a lot of scholars argue, consolidated what we think of as hysteria. And they actually come up with the idea that, uh, or they borrow the idea of stigmata as a religious phenomenon, say, like in the case of St. Francis. Um, And they say that is really kind of a prototype of how all hysterics work, not just the religious, but other women that have unexplained bleeding or are behaving irrationally. It's the same process of there's something wrong with their mind and then there's this bodily manifestation. And the word stigmata then gets taken from its religious context into the medical context. And even now today, stigmata is used by some physicians to describe uh, the clinical signs that describe an illness. So it's the presentation of something in the same way. But psychosomatic illnesses can, mm-hmm. can work the other way too right. in terms of that you can have some people looking at um, miracles. Right. Okay? And you can have some people with a medical condition. Right. And everyone says, not possible, mm-hmm. you know, nothing's going to happen, da-da-da-da-da. Right. But the willpower of that person to say, you know what, I am not finished with this will. Right. I'm going to get better. They're mm-hmm. just so positive all the time. Right. And whether you want to call it psychosomatic right. healing or, yes. or whatever, yeah. they have such strong willpower yeah. that somehow, mm-hmm. not in all cases, but somehow right. they get themselves better. When yeah. They suddenly become in remission when the doctors didn't expect them to go right. into remission, for instance, with cancer and stuff like right. that. So I would imagine something like that would help the becoming the saint part because here's a miracle and that's what a lot of critics would say of these saints is that they're maybe trying to will this to happen to them so that they can get this big following that some people might say that uh like pio and newman were hysterical they were trying to mimic christ and they were so determined and so kind of too pious or overly zealous that Mm -hmm. this happened and so my research i think is less trying to see if that's true or not like if it was psychosomatic or not but it's looking at who's saying it's psychosomatic who's saying it's genuine and what is involved in that exchange and why would someone have an interest in saying it's psychosomatic or not so so with that in mind how Mm -hmm. does gender affect the investigation of whether stigmata are true or not right and what are the consequences of gender suspicion of stigmata? Right. So, because you were saying that mm-hmm. uh, Theresa Newman, right. she's only been beatified. Right. I speculate in this paper that I have that I'm working on that at least I think part of the reason that she has not been canonized yet, um, though she has been beatified, but um, they lived like Pio and Newman lived in roughly the same period. Mm-hmm. I speculate that perhaps it has to do with these critiques of hysteria that are really common in the 20th century about stigmatics. Right. Um, so a lot of the writing, both from physicians and from Catholic theologians, is that these particular cases are hysterical and they're not genuine. 
but some, say, Catholic theologians would still argue that St. Francis's stigmata were real. So they're not saying that they don't exist, but some might be saying this case is hysterical. And I think that broadly, I think the fact that Pio has been canonized and Newman has not, amongst other things, including their location and politics and um, being a man and being able to be in the public sphere in southern Italy and Newman not so much being able to do that. But I think, too, critiques of stigmata as hysterical are much more penetrating for women and are probably do more in terms of discrediting them. Would it discredit them? I mean, you mentioned hysteria and things, but discredit them instead of being... Um, a long sainthood type thing, but more right. witch, a witch. Right. Does that play into it? And I know I'm yeah. sort of going off on a real no. tangent here, but when you talk about hysteria and, and right. things happening that are different, right. it could be easily could be, could be conceived as the general population understanding it to be more witchery. Right. And so I think, like, and I, I'm not 100% certain on this, but I'm broadly, like, kind of just remembering that before this kind of medical investigation of stigmata, there was also a sense, and there still is a sense, that stigmata can not only be genuine and divine, but that they can be genuine and diabolical. Okay. So there's also a sense that Satan can genuinely give someone stigmata as part of a deceptive scheme. Right. And that has also been around in writings on stigmata, kind of before and up until this day as well. Right, right. So I'm not sure if... The, the notion of a witch explicitly plays into that, but I'm sure that idea of comes around. D- the diabolical woman kind of comes around. And interestingly enough, too, between around 87 and 91% of all stigmatics are women. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so it is... So, oh, okay. It seems to be very gendered in who claims them. And I think, too, the fact that, uh, say, Teresa Newman as a woman is claiming this in this period where there's a lot of other Catholic events that are seen as superstitious, such as like Marian apparitions and a variety of other things, that she's probably more likely to be discredited for that on the basis of gender. So that's kind of my tentative speculation. Interestingly enough, though, on October 13th of this year, two Catholic saints were canonized that were women and both had the stigmata. Oh, is that right? They were from earlier periods. One was St. Miriam Thresia, the other was St. Marguerite Bays. But so there's something else there, too. And I think Mm -hmm. that's worth looking at their lives, too, and seeing, um, because I think they're the most recent now stigmatics that have been canonized. Yes, it would be interesting, because when I was reading up about Theresa Newman, Mm -hmm. you would think she was a bit wacko. Right. I shouldn't say it like that. Yes. No, some people, yeah, definitely. More hysterical, as you you mentioned. Right. But But she had a big following. She did. Yeah. She had a massive following. Whereas these other names you just mentioned, I don't know who they are. Right. And so... I'm not familiar with the size of their Mm. movements, but say, for example, Padre Pio, his shrine media complex, Michael D. Giovini has claimed it takes in about 120 million euros every year. Is that right? So it's a massive, massive enterprise. So it's an economical thing too. Yeah, and some people argue that too, that there's this economic angle. And I think, again, I'm not trying to claim that they're doing it for X, Y, or Z reasons, or it's true or not, but there are there's a lot at stake right. in it for medicine, for the Catholic Church, for these towns, for these people who are claiming the stigmata, everything. There's there's a lot there, I think. Hmm. Yeah. So what does this research 
project have to say about how Catholicism and medicine relate to each other right. or religion and science more broadly right. because it's, it's not an easy one. No. <laughs> you haven't made this easy for no. you because master, your master's is not very long. Right. No, exactly. It's one year. So I think it's pretty complicated. I think it, A, kind of rules out the thesis that at least medicine and Catholicism are enemies or opponents. Right. I think that's right. pretty clear in this research. Yes. I think it's more complicated, too, than just a pure kind of um, conspiratorial or um, relational role in terms of legitimating each other, too, because mm-hmm. there are tensions in um, this kind of Catholic medicine exchange on stigmata. Right. So the Catholic Church, like I've mentioned regularly brings physicians in to investigate stigmata or medical miracles more broadly and use that kind of as their authority for saying we've checked the science on it. They, interestingly too, Michael D. Giovanni has pointed out that they in the 20th century had this turn where they say to check if they're real or not, you not only need to be a physician, but you also have to know a lot about Catholic theology. So that's a certain way too, I think, of being strategic on who has a good claim to checking out if stigmata are real or not. On the flip side, I think medicine has and medical actors have something to gain by having the Catholic Church bring them in, right? Like that in itself legitimates that they have a good claim on what is happening with people's bodies. And there have been examples of that earlier, like during the Counter-Reformation period of the Catholic Church uh, using anatomists and uh, people to check uh, certain saints' bodies after death to see if there's signs of sanctity. Bradford Bully writes a lot oh, about this. Right? Are they allowed to do that? They were in the Counter-Reformation period. Oh. They would dig up almost every uh, oh, prospective saint's body. That was a big no-no. <laughs> Apparently not in this instance. <laughs> yeah. So I think, and he argues that that exchange was what helped partially physicians become the dominant kind of medical figure that we see today. So okay. I think there's something there too in having physicians involved in this. It gives them a certain legitimacy. Interestingly, though, in a lot of the medical literature that's been published in the past 10 years about stigmata, most of them do not genuinely believe that stigmata could be real. It's religious or even a religious thing. Right. Most think it's kind of they're in the tradition of this is some sort of hysterical or psychosomatic phenomena. And so I think that's kind of the the long-term question of this is how Mm -hmm. will stigmata in the next 50, 100, and 200 years look? Is will the Catholic Church be able to acknowledge them? Will they have to kind of downplay them even more than they already are? Or the flip side is, will Mm -hmm. medicine start seeing them in a different light? Exactly. And if medicine can kind of prove their their origin and the pathway, will that discredit stigmata from the past, like St. Francis and the future? Right. And some physicians write about that too in contemporary medical literature is that if we can kind of look to the past, or if mm-hmm. we can figure it out now, then stigmata past, present, and future are ruled out. So that's kind of, I think, the the future-looking um, right. angle of this is like, how will this look in the coming years? Because there's no doubt there's things mm-hmm. that have happened to people that people that doctors right. or religion can explain. Right. It's yeah. just, it happened. And, right. and we all say, well, that's a miracle. Right. Didn't expect that. And like yeah. I said, a lot of it, I think, is to do with willpower and stuff, right. personally. Right. But um, Yeah, and that's kind of where I think Catholicism and perhaps religion, if we can call something religion like that, 
comes into play because when medicine can't explain these things, yeah. that's where an authority claim can come in right, um, right. and say that's because medicine is limited in these ways and can't explain stigma. And this, and this has been explained by the spiritual side of a right. person's well-being. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, interesting. Right. Yes, I at least think so. I hope you do too. <laughs> yeah. I do because yeah. I'm always interested to see how, first of all, how um, students get to pick their topic. Right. And then when you look into the topic, you go, okay, I, I know I'd heard about these phenomena. Right. Didn't really think too much about it other than mm-hmm. thinking, is it true right. or not? Yeah, right. All right. Because there's always ways you can, there's always pros and cons to everything. Yeah. And so the fact that you're looking into it a little bit more right. closely, yeah. and there are such um, new ones as well right. that yeah. are happening. It's not just yeah. what happened in the past. Right. There yeah. are still people getting that right yeah Um, i'm going to ask one more question for sure is this the same as i was trying to think there was a a statue of the virgin mary and she cries right is this is this a similar thing or is this something totally different that's a really good question um i don't know if i have a fully formed answer for you but i think it is within that kind of category of experiences, whether it's weeping Marian statues Mm -hmm. or um, apparitions of the Mary that were seen uh, of Mary during the 20th century and these other kind of phenomena that are supernatural in some way that the Vatican might have at times a tense relationship with because they're also going through in the the mid 20th century, they're going through this reform period. They're trying to seem more legitimate, less superstitious, and the church itself is very critical of these things. And so, again, there's this gap, I think, between the official story that the Catholic Church might say about if these things are real or not, and kind of popular lived religion, which is what is sometimes a term used in religious studies, of how people might relate to these things. And so, again, I don't know if it's necessarily the place of religious studies scholars to say that's real or not, but it's more looking at um, what does that do? And mm-hmm. who is saying if it's real or not and what's at stake, I guess. There's another topic for you. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's my next that paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to have to call it quits. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you. I always yeah. find um, we've had a few students from the religious re- religious studies program come on the show. Right. And it's fascinating because there's so much to religion. Right. Of course, we know there's so many different faiths and, right. and beliefs and things. and. Right whether it's Catholicism, Judaism, um, Islam, or even the witchery and stuff, and uh, voodoo and all those sorts of things. I mean, they're all part of it. So that's why I find religious studies fascinating. And there's always other little areas you can sort of dig into. Yeah, exactly. Which is is really nice. So I really appreciate you coming on and talking about that. Uh, Good luck with everything. Thank you. Um, The year will go fast. Yes. Yeah, I bet. Well, thanks so much for having me, Colette. And have a good rest of your year, too. Oh, I will. Yes, I absolutely will. will. Uh, So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Gotcha. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.